Well, good morning. Great job, Joe, and the band. Um, if you're expecting, yeah, give them a hand. If you're expecting Carrie this morning, you got me. And, and so I was telling Mike, I said, Mike said, there's a full house here today. And I said, well, Carrie said last week I was going to be speaking. Obviously, the people here have some memory issues. And uh, Mike, Mike said, no, you're speaking on kindness, and God has these people here today to hear about kindness. Man, that did my heart some good to hear that, so I appreciate that. Um, we were a part of Course Church, then Awakening Church, and I see a lot of faces of people I don't know, but I, we were gone for about a year, and then one time, a few months ago, Joe said, would you come and play banjo? I want to do a bluegrass set. So I came back that Sunday and played banjo and pretty much been back ever since. But, Joe, I'll tell you one reason. One reason we came back to Awakening is your kindness. We felt like we had come home that Sunday, uh, and that was just wonderful. So thank you. But truth be told, Joe, I really miss playing in a band with you. And, uh, you know, there's not many churches want a 64-year-old guy up on stage playing. Everybody's more youth-oriented. So, Joe, thanks for having me back. So we're into expressions of the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. One fruit, love. And then there are several expressions of that fruit. And Carrie's covered the first few The fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy is love smiling. Peace is love resting. Patience um, is love doing something. And (laughs) kindness, (laughs) kindness is love acting. I knew better than to rely on my memory. So let me ask you a question this morning. What do you want to be when you grow up? I'm waiting to grow up, but when I was a kid, we'd go to family reunions. Now, I'll give you a little insight into my family on my father's side. The reunions were held in a cave in Tennessee, so you can just kind of let your mind go with that. But, that, you know, Greg, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I didn't give it much thought. Um, my, younger, my older brother wanted to be a soldier. All he ever wanted to do. And a couple of years ago, he retired after 29 and a half years in the Army Ranger Corps, retired as a sergeant major, fought in four wars. He loved his life as a soldier. I'm a funeral director. <laughs> I got a master's in psychology, and I'm a funeral director. And I preached for 30 years, and I'm a funeral director. Never dreamed I would be a funeral director. But I love it. It's a wonderful ministry. So what do you want to be when you grow up? Spiritually speaking, Paul writes that God has given us all these gifts, given the church gifts to be used in the church until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And then the next verse, we don't have that slide, but the next verse says, Then... Meaning that's something we can accomplish. 
through the Spirit of God in our hearts. I can grow up and become fully mature in the Lord. I'm not there yet. If you think God has a sense of humor, one of the issues I need to work on with the Spirit is kindness. I, I, my gift is sarcasm. <laughs> and those two are hard to deal with together. So we can grow up in the Lord. And what we're talking about in these gifts is actually growing up and becoming mature in the Lord. Now, Carrie's brought us this far. He asked me if I could um, take this one today while he's in Indiana doing a, a wedding. I guess that wedding's over with by now. I read a post this week, and it said this. God really wants to save us. And I reread that statement. God really wants to save us. And I thought that is such a profound thing, profound truth. I mean, he went to unimaginable pain to bear our sins that we might be saved. And he wants us to live to the fullest of life. I came to give life and life abundantly. Life to the fullest. And that's what this is all about, the spiritual uh, fruit of love. I wasn't raised in that truth. I wasn't raised in that truth that God really wants to save us. I was raised to believe that God pretty much lowered a King James Bible down on a rope with a yellow sticky note that said, good luck. (laughs) And all God was waiting to do was find me at a moment when I could not possibly explain my way out of this, and that's when I was going to be zapped. But God really, really wants to love us. So what does a life that's filled with the fruit of the Spirit look like? Well, that's what we're talking about. That's what we're talking about. In Galatians 5, Paul talks about the acts of the nature, the nature of man. When you look at man without any influence or impact of God in his life, it's a nasty picture. As a matter of fact, Paul says in Romans, It's like looking down the throat of death. Now, let me give you a little picture to think about while you're eating lunch today. Death stinks. We run a mortuary and a crematory. The moment you take your last breath, the enzymes in your body that digest your food start digesting you. And death, after a few hours or a day or two, it's the most putrid Thing you can imagine. And Paul says, that's where the acts of the flesh lead you. This is the fruit of the Spirit. This is the fruit of the Spirit. So I want to look at love expressed in kindness with two illustrations, one from the Old Testament, one from the New. The first one is found in Second uh, Kings or Second Samuel chapter nine. Now all week I sent Carrie Second Kings that has thirty nine verses, and he kept saying, "Are you sure you want this many verses up there?" Yes. And Friday I realized I sent him the wrong text, so I said, "No, no, no." Second Samuel. There's only thirteen verses. So David is the king of Israel, and his best friend Jonathan is dead now. Saul is dead now. Saul was the king. And Jonathan was Saul's son. And 
Jonathan had asked David one time, when you become king, when you ascend to the throne, because it was just a matter of time before he was going to ascend, will you spare my family? Because at that time, when a king came into power, he would exterminate all of the family of the previous king to prevent any kind of uprising, any kind of revolt against his reign. And so David is the king of Israel. He's firmly instantiated on the throne of Israel. And he remembers the promise that he made to his friend Jonathan. And he asks himself, is there anyone left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? The Hebrew word there for kindness actually should be grace. But in your prayer, you nailed it. Kindness. Grace, you can't separate the two. They flow out of each other. And he doesn't ask, is there anyone qualified? Is there anyone worthy? Is there anyone that might help advance my kingdom? Is there anyone that would make me look really good? He just says, is there anyone to whom I can show kindness? And there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. And he came before David and the king said, are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. And the king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? And Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan, but, it's not in the text, but, he's crippled. He's lame in both feet. He's not the kind of guy that's going to fit in your throne room. He's not the kind of guy that's going to fit in your palace. He's not the kind of guy that's going to make you look good. He's going to look really awkward. David says, where is he? Ziba answers, well, he's at the house of Machir, son of Amiel in Lodabar. Lodabar means in the Hebrew language, no, L-O meaning no, and Debar meaning no pasture, pasture land. He's in the most desolate, barren place you can imagine, probably hiding under the radar so the king doesn't find him and take his life. And so one day the soldiers come. David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, comes to David. He bows down to pay honor. And David says, Mephibosheth? Now, at that point, had I been David, I would have asked, what kind of drugs were your parents on when they named you that? (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, surely had a shortened version of that. Mephib or something, I don't know. But... Meth, yeah. <laughs> Sheth, meth. So he replies, that's your service. And David says to him, don't be afraid. I love that verse, don't be afraid. Because Mephibosheth is expecting to receive a death sentence. He's expecting David to say, your life is done. He's expecting the very worst. And David says, Don't be afraid. I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. And Mephibosheth bowed down and said, 
What is your servant that I should that you should notice a dead dog like me? And the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and he said to him, I've given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and to bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. And Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And he said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Verse 13, he lived in Jerusalem. He always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. In another place in the Bible, it tells how he became crippled. His uh, family was hurriedly moving, and the lady taking care of him dropped him, broke his feet somehow. We don't know anything other than that. Imagine just for a moment eating at the table of David. Amnon comes in. I don't know what how they summoned back then, dinner bell, I don't know, trumpet. But dinner is being served, and Amnon, the son of David, comes in. If you know anything about Old Testament history, he's a very clever, witty guy. Joab, he's not a son of David, but he's a permanent guest. He's one of the soldiers of David. He's masculine. He's muscular. He stands tall. He walks with the pride of a, of a soldier. He's kind of everything Mephibosheth isn't. He comes in, sits down. Absalom, every girl's dream. Long, black, flowing hair. Matter of fact, it was his hair that killed him later on. He was riding under a tree and his hair got caught in the branches and he hung himself. But Absalom was the most handsome man in all of Israel. And if he was every girl's dream, his sister Tamar was every guy's dream. Drop dead gorgeous. She walks in, takes her place at the table. Solomon, king in grooming, scholarly Solomon walks in and sits down. And then they wait. And they wait. And they hear a... As Mephibosheth drags himself down the hallway, takes his seat at the table, looks around and smiles at the others, and the tablecloth of grace covers his crippled feet. I love that story. I love that story. The other one is the life and ministry of not a king, but the king of kings, Jesus in Mark chapter 10. I was going to do a lot of background of this this morning, but I'll save it for another time. It's fascinating background, but Jesus is leaving or coming towards Jericho, and there's a large group of disciples with him, and he's teaching. So this is church. This is church on the way, on the move. And he's teaching, and a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means the son of Timaeus, is sitting at the roadside begging. And he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth. He began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, told him to be quiet. In the Greek, it really literally means shut up. 
Now, my kids are grown, and I can say that. When I was preaching and my kids were young, uh-oh, there are kids right here. You're never to say shut up, okay, even if it's in the Bible. But Janice would never let me use that term because our kids weren't allowed to say that. But that's what they said, shut up. And he just got louder. And Jesus stopped and said, call him over. And so they called to the blind man and said, this is your day. Cheer up. Get on your feet. The master's calling you. So he throws his cloak aside, jumps to his feet, and he comes to Jesus. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? Have you ever been asked a question that's so big you can't answer it? I mean, look at this question. This is the creator of the earth. This is the creator of the universe saying, what do you want me to do for you? Now, in my shallowness, I would have said something like, can we take this discussion up at Guitar Center? (laughs) Can we go to Scottsdale, Arizona, to the largest Harley dealership in the world? Let's talk Harleys. Can we just go to my bank? See what you can do to my account? Because that's about as shallow as I am. Bartimaeus says... Actually, this version doesn't have what the older versions have. This one says, Rabbi, I want to see. The other versions say, if I could just see. You can have anything you want. And he says, if I could just see. And Jesus said, go, your faith has healed you. And he received his sight and he followed Jesus along the road. Why do you think we know this guy's name? There are a lot of important people in the Bible whose names we don't know. Centurions, rulers, kings, angels. Some are named, most of them aren't. Peter's mother-in-law. I would have never got by with just saying mother-in-law. You know, that's Nana has the headache. Can you do something for her? But we know his name. Why? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. But it's interesting that we're told the guy's name. He is a nobody in Israel. He's blind. He's a beggar. He's not allowed to come into the temple to worship. He has no status at all other than to sit on the side of the road and beg for help. And we know his name. The God of the universe knows his name. Kind of gives me some hope. He knows mine too. He knows yours too. Jesus gives him a future. He gives him hope. He gives him status. He gives him possibilities that he's never had. So let me point out about four things to take from this lesson because exactly 20 minutes after I started, my wife is probably going to stand up and say, okay, that's enough. Can you let us go? Number one, kindness flows from grace. Kindness flows from grace. Tell you a story and then bring it back to the spiritual. For 20 years, I was a high school basketball official. A few years in Alabama, the rest of the years in Florida. And early on when I was a basketball official, I had to call the varsity boys game for Central High School in Florence, Alabama. Head coach, Snuffy Smith. Snuffy Smith ate referees for dinner. 
And I was working this game, and he was riding my back the whole game. Didn't bother the other official, just me. And finally, I give him a technical foul. I said, Coach, you're going to have to sit down and stop that. Well, then he quietened down. But every time I ran down that side of the floor, he stepped out and said something under his breath that only I could hear. And he just kept riding me the whole game. Gave him another technical. Made me look like an idiot because nobody else could see what he was doing. It looked like I'm taking vengeance on this guy. So two technicals in high school basketball at that time. I don't know what it's like now. I haven't called in 25 years. But back then the coach was thrown out. Fortunately, I never had to call another Central High School game. But I let Coach Smith get under my skin. A little bit later, an older, seasoned, wiser official told me one time at a game, he said, Greg, let me tell you how to do Because we were talking about this coach at halftime. And I hadn't, te- I hadn't thrown him out of the game, but he was, I, I, he was bothering me. And this other official said, Greg, here's what you do. When that coach questions your call, you go right up to him, look him right in the eyes, and you say, Coach, you're right. I probably missed that call. What's he going to do? He's not going to argue because I just gave him the yard. I, he, I let him win. You're right, Coach. I probably missed that call. And I learned from that older official, if you extend some kindness there and a little grace, they'll get off your back. I called basketball for probably another 12, 15 years. I never had another issue with a coach. I just said, you know what, you're probably right. And then when it's an obvious call, like out of bounds or something, there's no way you cannot get it right. I would, look, I would call it, and I'd look at the coach, and I said, I can get some of them right. Just being kind. Just being kind. On a spiritual level, though, Remember Romans 5, when we were utterly in our sinfulness, God sent His Son to die for us. Totally helpless, didn't deserve a thing, God sent His Son. What do you do with that? I mean, if I realize the degree to which God has been kind to me, when I didn't deserve any of it, how can I not be kind to others? In Ephesians 4, Paul writes, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ God forgave you. How do I hold a grudge against somebody else? How do I harbor resentment? How do I harbor anger? How do I refuse to forgive someone else if I realize at all the degree to which I've been forgiven? So kindness flows out of grace. Um, Number two, well, let me back up. Carrie's going to get into this uh, later on this year. But, you know, we are engaged in a spiritual conflict. We're not just engaged in a spiritual conflict. Planet Earth is a spiritual outpost. Have you ever thought about that? It's an excellent book out there by Greg Boyd. He's a Ph.D. philosopher slash theologian. And the book is God at War. It's not an easy book to read, but it's, it's, a, it's a deep, fascinating book. 
This planet is a spiritual outpost. Genesis chapter 1, when God created this universe, there had already been war in heaven. And as soon as man was created, there was war on earth because Satan appears to tempt Eve. So this has always been a spiritual outpost. We're engaged in this cosmic spiritual battle. And if Satan can just neutralize my awareness and my dependence upon the Spirit of God, he can pretty much neutralize any effect, any effectiveness, any impact I'll have for the kingdom of God. So I've got to let the grace of God flow through my life. So the second one is up there. Kindness is often counterintuitive. I took uh, several years of martial arts training, eventually got the coveted black belt that pretty much means at this point in my life, I could try to kick Joe in the face and I would do untold damage to myself. (laughs) But at one time, I thought I could do that stuff. Um, But the first thing they taught us in martial arts was avoid the fight. But that's not in our spirit. You do me wrong, I'm getting even. That's the natural response. You slap me, I'm hitting back. But kindness is counterintuitive. Jesus says, you know, you've heard love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I'm going to tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of the Father of heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous, the unrighteous. Now listen to this. If you love those who love you, so what? Even the tax collectors can do that. And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than anyone else? Even pagans do that. Be perfect as our Father is perfect. Kindness is counterintuitive. I've got to have something besides my power to pull it off. That's why it's an expression of love. Number three, moving through these quickly. Kindness is the clothing of Christ. Colossians, the whole book of Colossians is all about the sufficiency of Christ in every part of our lives. I cannot love you the way God wants me to love you, but Christ in me can love you the way Christ wants you to be loved. I can't forgive you the way God wants me to forgive you, but Christ in me can. Christ in me can accomplish everything necessary for me to be sufficient. And so Paul says, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other. Forgive one another. If anyone has grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God through him. Kindness is being clothed with Jesus. Now, all of these points, we could do a whole sermon. But I think one of the most kind things I could do for you today is get you out of here shorter. Block that out of the tape. Finally, kindness is often costly. 
me share with you, many of you know this. Um, my son and his family, Josh, Heather, and the kids, they were uh, vacationing in Maine for a week. They're making their way back home, and um, they're in Atlanta. I haven't been through Atlanta in a long time. Uh, I know Dallas, though. You know how you have to get on those trains and go from one thing to the other, and uh, if you miss your train, tough. Well, Atlanta's that way, and all of that stuff's underground. So they're waiting on the train. Train stops, and everybody's trying to rush to get on the train to go to where it, so they can catch their flight. Josh and Heather and Logan and Lily get on the train, and as Jackson starts to get on, the doors close. And you can't open those doors, and you can't stop that train. And Jackson is standing on the platform while his family is in the train car pulling away. I, I can't imagine what was going through Heather's mind and heart. Janice can. I can. I'm not a mother. But I know as a dad that would have just been horrible. Because dads fix things. We, we make things work out. And there's nothing you can do. Heather screams, and I've got their permission to share this. Heather screams at Jackson. Jackson, you stay right there. And if I remember the story right, she looks at a man standing with Jackson and says, you watch my son. So they go down. I don't how long, how far was it? Half a mile, mile? About a half a mile. Might as well have been Colorado from here. I had to run it. But Heather gets off the train and runs as fast as she can run back to get Jackson. And the man that was standing there was still there watching after Jackson. And Heather was so winded she couldn't even talk. But she later talked to the guy. He missed his flight watching my grandson. But he told Heather over the phone, he said, I have two young children. I wouldn't want that to have happened to my kids. Kindness can be costly. The kindness of God costs Jesus his life. And kindness makes a difference. Kindness makes a difference. I'm going to share one more story with you after the band plays Kindness Again. 